0: Us getting all into the, the Chrysler, who, the Chrysler sections of this book. Who would have
1: thought? <laughs>
2: Welcome to Unfamiliar Tales, a podcast about animals telling animal stories. I'm Haley Milliman, and I am here with my co-host Prathima Gopalakrishnan. How's it going?
0: Hi, it's uh, great to be here talking about part three of the life and opinions of the Tom Capmer. Uh We have so many exciting things happening in this part of the book, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So
2: last episode, we learned that Chrysler had survived his mysterious disappearance, thankfully, um, and he ended up at this monastery uh, with his friend, Father Hilarious, where he sought shelter, enjoyed some, you know, fowl and a, a great a great meal on the side of the mountain, <laughs> and then was welcomed into this place where uh, he felt like he had some sanctuary. Um Meanwhile, in his absence at the court of Prince Irenaeus, Princess Hedwiga had fallen into a catatonic state, and the court was in a bit of a state of disarray after Chrysler's uh, sudden disappearance, as well as Prince Hector's sudden disappearance, and Hedwiga in this state of medical emergency. So we will pick up today talking about what's going on with all of the people at Prince Irenaeus's court as they deal with, again, these sudden disappearances and with Hedwig's illness. So Prathima, do you want to tell us a bit about what, what we learn uh, in the conversations between the people kind of left behind at Prince Irenaeus's court in this state?
0: Yeah, so we talked in episode six about the theories around court about what might be wrong with Princess Hedwiga. The, the doctor who comes to see her is convinced that it's connected to some kind of uh, lover's quarrel. Mm-hmm. The doctor isn't presented as you know, having, having the correct answer or you know being the infallible authority in this case. We learn about Princess Hadwiga's state through these conversations that are happening around her between all these different members of the, of the court. So there's the conversation between the doctor and uh, her mother, Princess Maria. But there's also other conversations, uh, n- most notably between uh, Prince Irenaeus and Master Abraham and Madame Benzon and Master Abraham. And we get kind of a slow reveal of some of the details about how Princess Hedwigot came to be in this state. Madame Benzon and Master Abraham are basically stuck in this power struggle, <laughs> trying to be like, you know, top advisor to Prince Irenaeus. So we get some of those, some of that, that rivalry. And we learn a little bit about some of the motivations behind why Madame Benzon is so invested in her little uh, scheming and uh, social engineering at the court. But I, I do want to emphasize that Master Abraham is, I think, just as embedded in all the same uh you know, schemes and uh, plo- plots and ploys and things like that. Uh, so a lot of this part is just, you know, through these conversations, you see you see them uh, trying to outsmart each other because they're each trying to make some kind of outcome that's desirable to them come about. And all these outcomes, of course, pertain to other people's marriages. Mm-hmm. So Prince Irenaeus, you know, in this moment of crisis, uh, much to, I think... Madame Benzone's dismay, he reaches out to Master Abraham to have a conversation about you know, why Hedwig is in the state, what can be done about it. And so they have a secret conversation in, the, in Master Abraham's uh, Fisherman's Cottage of Horrors. And we're not privy to this conversation. We don't know what happens there, except, you know, as it's reported uh, in other conversations. And, you know, we get a little more reveals about what was said in that cottage later on in part four but in part three uh all we all we learn really about this conversation between prince Irenaeus and master Abraham is that uh the is that Hedriga apparently fell into the state at the exact moment that the shot rang out in the woods I think that this does kind of Throw some aspersions on the theory that this is, you know a simple lover's quarrel, because uh, in order for there to be in order for it to be the result of a lover's quarrel, she would have had to have a quarrel with a lover first. Uh, but so that's that's kind of the the gist of what we learn about this conversation between Prince Ieneus and Master Abraham. We learn even this little detail only through a different conversation. That's happening between Master Abraham and Madame Benzon mm-hmm.
2: so Madame Benzon kind of appears out of nowhere, I think one night to to uh to talk to Master Abraham, and it's part of this kind of ongoing jockeying of power that they're going on to be the the supreme kind of counsellor for Prince Irenaeus, so Madame Benzon appears one night and assistant
0: assistant to the prince yes
2: assistant to the prince (laughs) assistant to the regional prince um so (laughs) she shows up and kind of confronts master abraham about this conversation and it's clear i think in her dialogue that she is trying to Discover kind of what secrets happened in that conversation by implying that she actually knew what secrets were in the conversation. She's almost fishing for information from Master Abraham. Uh, by showing up and pretending, oh, I, I know actually know everything that you're saying, so it's okay if you if you want to discuss it with me, that type of kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so she's like, oh, you know what, that that secret convo you had in your creepy fisherman's cottage, like I ho- heard the whole thing. Don't even worry, we can talk about it. But Master Abraham, on the other hand, knows that there's really no way she could have heard the conversation because he has set up.
0: Because it's a creepy cottage of horrors. Yes, it's a
2: creepy cottage of Of horrors. And because he's Master Abraham and likes to invent weird things, he set up, it seems like, this type of device that kind of distorts the audio for eavesdroppers um, because there's so much stuff going on in his cottage, um, I guess, that he has to protect. Um, So anyway, Master Abraham knows that it's impossible for Madame Benzone to have accurately heard a conversation because he set up this uh this device that distorts the audio for anyone trying to eavesdrop on him so when Madame Benzone confronts him and says oh you know I actually know everything that that happened why don't we talk about it he kind of just says like <laughs> he kind of calls her bluff um and says like well if you know everything go ahead and <laughs> tell me about it and then she stands there so he kind of calls her bluff and then she just stands there in almost stunned silence i think for a bit realizing that of course she doesn't know because she wasn't able to eavesdrop on them and then they start to talk a little bit about chrysler and what happened with chrysler master abraham at this point in the conversation has not yet mustered the courage to open Chrysler's letter. So he doesn't know that he is fine. So he is a bit worried about Chrysler um, and whether or not he is OK, whereas Madame. Wait, is
0: that right? Yes. Oh
2: my gosh, <laughs> that's has- hilarious. <laughs> he hasn't opened it yet. So they talk a bit about um, about Chrysler, and Master Abraham expresses his concern for him, while Madame Benzone is kind of like, oh, why do you care about that guy? Like, first of all, he's probably fine. Um, and then second of all, like, <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? And I think this is where I start to struggle a bit with Madame Benzone and kind of why she's having any of these conversations. I wonder a bit about what Madame Benzone's motivations are here. I guess in this conversation with Abraham and in how she is trying to learn about Irenaeus, it seems like it's all... For power, and then also for the the arrangements of the marriages and the ways that she
0: wants. I really don't know how often they're actually playing at the same game. Mm. Um, That's what I mean a bit. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what's Abraham's game? What's her
2: game? I feel a bit confused because I also feel like... And one of some of the notes that I have in the margins of here are, I wonder... One of the things I was thinking as as I was rereading this is I wonder if it's a a bit of a play out of the kind of Philistine cat conversation and if Madame Benzone and her kind of um her her concern with like courtly shenanigans and like jockeying for power and all of that is kind of representing the like Philistine bourgeois concerns, whereas Abraham is kind of more on the side of like we're just here for like the art and the science
0: and like the interest because I feel like, but he is just as I feel like he's exactly. just as embroiled in like stupid exactly. courtly drama. He's the definition of stupid. So I, that's why I take this mm-hmm. whole thing with a grain of salt. Like you know even even when they're, when they're playing this game, like you know Master Abraham gets this little. He's like, oh, like, you're trying to you know get the get this like spicy gossip out of me. Well, you know jokes on you like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna reveal my secrets so easily i'm going to turn this bluff around on you um so he wins you know <laughs> he wins that little thing and then you know you've come out of that thinking haha like he's really made a fool of madame benzone but then you think about you know both master abraham and chrysler the amount of the amount of power and forethought that they attribute to what madame Benzon does um to the point that Chrysler Chrysler starts suspecting while he's at the monastery that Madame Benzon was in charge was like somehow involved in getting him there. These little moments where she is kind of made made mm-hmm. into a fool um, pale in comparison to the amount of uh, of power they think she has due to engineer yes. things at court. Uh, so things like you know exactly things like they think that she is so completely in control of what happens to Chrysler in yeah. particular. They think that, you know, so Madam so Mastery Prime gets really mad at her, even this conversation because he's like, Why are you know, why do you have it out for my friend Chrysler? Chrysler over at the monastery is like he suddenly has this realization, like, oh no, what if you know, he's like having a great time and he's like, Oh no, what if Madame Benson is responsible <laughs> for? My for this?
2: happiness at this monastery. <laughs> yeah. But also I think I think it's exactly. interesting because they do think they have this outsized they create almost this caricature of her, this outsized um, understanding of her influence in the court. But at the same time, as they're worried about it, in the conversations with her, Master Abraham is judging her for it, too. So it's like he's spending all this energy yes. worrying about her influence on him and Chrysler and the court. Yes. But then he attacks her for the same thing, too. And he's like, he he yeah. almost derides her for being so concerned with courtly drama, when clearly he is, too. <laughs> you know, he's like thinking this is all he's thinking about he's attributing all of these actions to her and then he's like he shames her almost for being like an unhappy woman who's just concerned with the same exact frivolous stuff that he's concerned with so it's interesting because
0: yeah namely you namely the fact that you know he he does understand Mm -hmm. the value of prince Irenaeus having approached him you know as the primary advisor he does recognize you know he understands why he why That conversation had to happen in the cottage. He understands why it had to be secret.
2: That's kind of where I was thinking about with the connection to the Philistines because I wonder if some of Master Abraham's derision for Madame Benzone is like, oh, you're just playing the power game for the sake of power or something like that. Like you're playing for an ignoble purpose, whereas myself and Chrysler are like creators and artists. And like Chrysler is playing this game because he knows that he needs a patron to like make his art that's going to change the world. And I, it, it's almost like they like they both know, he knows that power and Irenaeus' patronage is important, but he thinks that for whatever reason, Benzone's seeking of that patronage is like less noble than his. Like, it seems like he's both attacking the fact that she is a competitor for him, but also he seems to take, at least in my read, it a bit personally as to why she is looking for that power.
0: This is also the part where we actually learn uh, a little bit about why Madame Benzon is at this court. There's a scene in Part 3 where Prince Irenaeus then pulls Madame Benzon aside, much like he did with Master Abraham at the Fisherman's Cottage. So he pulls her aside, they have a conversation, and we learn from this conversation that uh, Prince Irenaeus and Madame Benzon actually had an affair many years ago, maybe a couple decades ago. and they had a child, a daughter, and Prince Irenaeus basically forced Madame Benzon to send this child away and would not let the child, um, you know, be raised in the same town. Uh, and that child, whose name is uh, is Angela, uh, has been, you know, Madame Benzon has basically lost, has, has lost her, doesn't know where she is. Uh, so, that, I <laughs> just, You get this reveal in part three and you suddenly realize oh my gosh like this is the Mm -hmm. subtext of this relationship it's not just you know casual jockeying for power at the court these people like yeah these people are embroiled in all kinds of very long-term kinds of ways um yeah and i think
2: that i think that it goes back to the fact that we can't as we talked about in the previous episode we can't look at any of the interpersonal relationships as love here because all of the relationships are related to power and different power dynamics in some way. And so even this reveal of the affair between Prince Irenaeus and Madame Benzon, while Madame Benzon is seen through Chrysler and Abraham's eyes as this like major power player and a a threat to their dominance and their prominence at court... She clearly is still very under the thumb of Prince Irenaeus. Like, he has sent away her child, and she has not been able to see her, and he is controlling the fate of her other child. So there's a lot that she is struggling for. And so, again, we see her primarily through Abraham and Chrysler's eyes, and we don't learn a lot about her, I think, internal motivation. But what we do get from her is, again, this, this deep, Sadness and frustration at the fact that she has lost track of her child, as well as we do get several um, points in her her initial conversation with Master Abraham where she talks about how she just wanted to lead a quiet life and she kind of got entangled with Prince Irenaeus and his court and then had this affair, the daughter was sent away. I mean, you can read into that what you will, whether or not she actually wanted a quiet life or she just says she wanted a quiet life and then actually wanted power. Um, But again, I think it's impossible to, to assign motive to any of the characters or to think about any of these interpersonal relationships without this intense power dynamic of the fact that they are at this court of someone who does have ultimate control over all of them.
0: When I started reading this book, I was like, uh, well, just you know, just get through <laughs> these so you can get to the fun cat parts." But that's actually this I guess really compelling. I think, and especially yes. in part three. And by the time we get to part four, and of course, you know, it is an incomplete manuscript in that Hoffman did not finish the story, so not all the secrets are revealed. But one of, another secret of, that is revealed here, actually, in this part, is that. There is also a connection between Madame Benzon's child, uh, Angela, and it turns out that and and Master Abraham. So it turns out that um, that Prince Ernest had Kiara. If you remember, Kiara is the girl that Master Abraham enslaved to be part of his little glass box magic trick. Kiara found out about this affair between Madame Benzon and Prince Ernest, and that. That is why uh, Prince Ernest, uh, in consultation apparently with with Madame Benzon, had mm-hmm. Kiara sent away. And so,
2: which I think adds again another layer to the conflict between Master Abraham and Madame Benzon as well, and another because um, Master Abraham, as we mentioned last time, is extremely distraught about Kiara's disappearance, and since Madame Benzon has a direct tie in to why Kiara is gone um there is again
0: another yes. and and now we learned that because of this conversation the fisherman's cottage so initially it was just chiara mm-hmm. that knew about this affair and you know she got she got yeah. disappeared essentially um now we learned that prince Renee has just told master abraham about the affair as well in yes. the fisherman's cottage so as it turns out madame benzone did know <laughs> what they were talking about in the college because yes. she lived but it but she didn't know but, because
2: she heard it yeah. i really end up liking the character of madame benzone in these because i think that she's just become such a caricature
0: i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far as to say i <laughs> like any of these people um they're all i think they're all more mm-hmm. complex characters the more i read it the more intrigued I am by what's going on with each of them. I think that's a credit to the book and a credit to Hoffman. At first glance it may not seem like a super rich text for uh, for female <laughs> characters and, you know, one of Haley's and my like biggest kind of complaints or regrets about this book is that, you know, why did Myrrh have mm-hmm. to be a tomcat? And we don't mean that just as like, oh replace Murr with a female cat, but actually we're thinking about what would how would this book have looked different if Myrrh had mm-hmm. been a female cat? um and how would this whole you know it's, it's the the chrysler sections of this book um seems like it traffics in all these types of romantic literature um and the you know the women it's so it's so i i think at first read i was like oh okay they're women painting <laughs> like how original but the more i read it i'm actually the more i read it and i think because we don't have the ending of the book It's really not clear to me like who, you know, who wants what from who, who's in love with who. I mean, it's really like it builds the Mm -hmm. intrigue really well to the point that, you know, in part two, we were we were trying to figure out who's in love with who. And now I don't even I don't even care about that. I feel like that's not the focus of the of the story. Yeah. And I do think it's
2: interesting because I think it's more about the consequences of love or the consequences of power dynamics than it is about like, oh, these like we, we care, like we're shipping, you know, like we want to know like who loves who. It's like, it's not, it's not about that. It's about how, yeah, how relationships have consequences and how they play out for different people, which I think brings me back to Hedwiga. You mentioned earlier in the episode that one of the reveals here is that Hedwi- Hedwiga fell into this catatonic state the exact moment that the shot rang out. So she doesn't, Learn that Chrysler or Hector have disappeared before she falls into this catatonic state. However, I do wonder if part if Hoffman is potentially implying that Hedwig's catatonic state is not as a result of the disappearance, but as a result of perhaps the rejection of Hedwig by Hector in favor of Julia. Um, because when Hedwega emerges from this catatonic state, uh, which she does, and we can talk about how that happens in a moment, when she emerges from this catatonic state, she has an initial conversation with Julia, where she asks Julia if she is in love, if she's in love with Chrysler, if she is in love with Hector. She says to Julia that she believes that Hector is in love with Julia. And so it seems like one of her initial concerns emerging from the catatonic state is this idea that Hector is in love with Julia even though he's betrothed to her Hedwiga. So I do wonder if, you know, she doesn't know anything about the disappearance, but when she comes out of this catatonic state, she is concerned with, like, love and how she is either worthy or not worthy of love and that Julia maybe is more um, more than she is. So I do wonder if maybe that is yeah. the catalyst and not the disappearance, like the, re-
0: the perceived rejection. I think there there is actually good evidence for that because one of the other, um, you know, main incidents in the second half of Part Three is uh, this appearance mm-hmm. of a mystery. Like you know, we get confirmation basically that Hector is in love with Julia. We also, uh, I think, get confirmation that H- that Hedwiga is worried that Julia is in love with either Hector mm-hmm. or Chrysler. I don't know what. You know, I don't know how Hedwiga feels about each of those people. Like, I don't know if she's in love with Hector or Chrysler. That, that's not really the focus of the conversation, but she is, she does want to know if, if Julia is in love yeah. with either of them. So we learned that. So Julia, so she asked Julia if she's in love with Chrysler, and Julia is <laughs> like, no, no, no. Like, I feel a much purer emotion for Chrysler. And this pure emotion is like, I just really, really <laughs> love his art. So something like that. It just reminded me of the (laughs) in the office when um, Roy tells Pam your your art is the prettiest art of all the art you know it's it's a deeper you know pure emotion than just love Um, art appreciation I think it's safe to say Julia is not I don't think she unless she's just like straight up lying I I don't it's just it's so hard to read some of these what some of these speeches will give I don't think she's straightforwardly like in Mm -hmm. love with Chrysler basically and then Hector, I think she pretty clearly does yes. not like Hector.
2: We learn in this section that there has been this kind of mysterious figure lurking about the court of Prince Irenaeus. So he's
0: kind of appears. He, oh, this mysterious figure appears mm-hmm. in the pavilion, so you can just see a silhouette, and he's looking into Julia's yes. quarters. Actually,
2: yep. And she wonders, you know, is this a ghost? Am I seeing things? What's happening? And then later we learned that this person is actually Hector, because he shows up and he confesses his love to Julia kind of out of the blue. He's just been lurking (laughs) in the bushes. peeking peering into her room he confesses his love to her he kisses her and uh then disappears again and she's incredibly distraught by this as i think anyone would be i guess when you're a prince not a prince you like don't really have a lot to do (laughs) but lurk in people's windows it does create this complication for hedwiga because she is betrothed to marry this man who is creeping in the window of her friend slash half-sister, even though she doesn't know that Julia is her half-sister. Um, so Hedwiga, understandably, I think, feels very distraught that, I would feel distraught if my betrothed was in love with my friend and also stalking her. <laughs> so I think there's there's several layers of
0: dist- it's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of alarming, a red flags. alarming
2: things to be alarmed <laughs> yeah. by in this. I know. Um, so yeah. So I mean, I think we learn again a lot in this section about how how power affects these characters. How how different characters are concerned with what they call love, but with what seems more like obsession, or uh, yeah, maybe more like obsession. I mean, I think what H- Hector has for Julia is clearly obsession. Um what Master Abraham has with Kiara is clearly some kind of un- unhealthy obsession and fixation. Um I wouldn't call Madame Benzol's fair affair with Irenaeus upset uh love by any means at this stage and we learned from Julia that she just has art appreciation for Chrysler. Um.
0: Yeah. <laughs> art appreciation. I I don't love you. I just Which is what love Chrysler wants.
2: To be honest. (laughs) Speaking of Chrysler, we know he's at the monastery in this section, and we know we know that he has met Father Hilarius, that he is feeling safe. Um, And then you you mentioned earlier that he starts to suspect that this whole thing has been orchestrated by Madame Benzon, that she has she's responsible for this supposedly chance meeting with um, Father Hilarius on the on the side of the mountain that she's responsible for him coming back to the monastery and that she is kind of behind um, the, that she's almost orchestrating it for him to, to remain at the monastery.
0: Yeah. I think the, I think the most important thing that happens in this part with Chrysler, once he arrives, at the monastery is that the monastery itself is uh, in the midst of some power uh, power transitions uh so we learn that uh there is a there's a new father in town his name's uh father Cyprian um so he has arrived at this abbey and um you know this happens this ha- this guy arrives like pretty much right after you know the abbot I think um, has been talking to like definitely yeah the abbot has been talking to Chrysler about. Mm-hmm. potentially joining the monastery and just becoming a monk. And Chrysler is like, you know, I'm really happy here. And like, this life is pretty good. Madame <laughs> Benzo must have something to do with this. I can't be too happy. <laughs> yes. To be fair, Father Hilarious then shows up and tells Chrysler that he should mm-hmm. he should quit the monastery because he, uh, Father Hilarious warns him that there's going to be this new power transition at the monastery. This Father Cyprian is, is supposed to be a much more um authoritarian kind of guy who's not going to keep the who's not going to you know it's not going to be like the good old times at the monastery so father hilarius suggests to Chrysler that he leave um but all this happens you know very very soon after Chrysler arrives there and um he is doing the same kind of he's he's their resident musical consultant so he's been writing some music for the abbey and um that's kind of what he's been up to um but he he realizes that Father Cyprian, and here again, (laughs) everyone is connected in this. So you realize that Father Cyprian actually, when the first time he sees his face, he realizes that he has this picture and like a locket or something, or some kind of like little small miniature picture that Master Abraham had given to him. And he realizes that the person depicted in that picture Mm -hmm. is Father Cyprian. So there's this little picture of Father Cyprian that he has, but he's also um, helping the abbot put up a painting at the monastery that depicts this person who's been stabbed, who's getting, uh, who's being saved by the Virgin Mary. And um, the abbot explains to Chrysler, oh, yes, you know, this is a young man who was, you know, very, was godless. And you know, didn't, you know, wasn't religious, but then he got stabbed. And then when he was, when, you know, this miracle was performed and he was rescued, it turns out that this person being depicted in that picture, the one who got stabbed, is actually also Father Cyprian. So we end this part three, um, you know, Chrysler story kind of wondering why (laughs) is there mysteriously all these pictures of Father Cyprian floating about before he arrives at the monastery. You know what what context was this painting made in that is going up now in the in the in the abbey and also um how did chrysler end up with this little picture and not only how did he end up with this picture but why was mm-hmm. it given to him by yeah. master abraham so we'll get we'll talk about the mystery behind that picture in part four
2: as i was reading these sections about the paintings i was like it would be so much easier if they had photographs <laughs> because the idea of like someone taking the time to craft paintings.
0: Meow. This is boring. Isn't this a podcast by and about cats? Forget Chrysler, get to the good stuff about Murr already.
2: Roof. Don't worry about it, Pebbles. Roof, roof. I'll fix it in post. With Murr, having reached kind of a new depth with his relationship with Musius, and soon after he's pledged the fraternity, he runs into the cat who stole Kitty away from him, or who Kitty chose over him. Um, the cat who is the veteran of the, of the war from the Order of the Burnt Bacon, and they have this little interaction where they kind of see each other, walk near each other, and the cat from The Order of the Burnt Bacon touches Murr's tail. <laughs> and Murr is like, did you touch my tail? Because I guess that's a, a huge offense. It's a big no-no, big in, no-no. <laughs> in the world in of the cats. Cat world. Um, and so he says he says something like, you know, did you just touch my tail? And the cat from The Order of the Burnt Bacon is almost like, yes, I did touch your tail. And not only that, but it was intentional. Uh, and so...
0: So we have this back and forth between between Myrrh and the Order of the Burnt Bacon Cat, uh, which it, it unfolds, you know, as life often imitates art, and art also <laughs> imitates art. Uh, it unfolds in this kind of Shakespearean rhythm <laughs> that the editor suddenly... So basically the, the editor of the manuscript after being totally absent for most of parts one and two, suddenly appears a lot in parts three and four, um, like just lamenting <laughs> Murr's plagiarism. Uh, in parts one and two, we just get footnotes as like, oh, like Murr is clearly citing such and such. And those, those footnotes are the modern editor, like whoever produced the edition in like the 1990s is like, oh, Murr is referencing this, and this or that work. But starting in part three, you see a lot more editorial insertions by Hoffman, where it's you know the in the voice of the editor of the manuscript saying, "Oh, Mur, you have you know you're decking yourself out and <laughs> borrowed plumes again. How could you?" So this is one of those cases. There's this um, this story of the duel unfolds according to this um, this this uh, uh, Shakespearean um, Shakespearean um, exchange, but it it ends with Mur finally facing. Uh, this other cat in a duel. Uh, so I don't need to explain uh, what a duel is. We've all seen Hamilton. Uh, it's almost exactly so like
2: that. Yeah. Much
0: like in Hamilton. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Exactly. Um, are there, yeah. Well, yes. I think you're the duel expert here. So I just, what's the, what is your, your, you know, yeah, what's your take um, on the duel?
2: I just think the duel is very funny. They have three, they decide to, to duel till first blood through biting, or to they try, decide to duel through through biting versus scratching, and on the first two rounds of the duel the cat from the Order of the Burnt Bacon gets the jump on Mur, Um and then in the last final one, Bur- Murr kind of triumphs over the cat from the Order of the Burnt Bacon, and feels very vindicated, even though he's been kind of scratched up and is bleeding, um, and ends up staggering back to Master Abrahams to receive some treatment but I think one of my favorite parts of the duel was that they had a medic cat (laughs) who was there which if any of our (laughs) listeners have listened to Hamilton there's a section where they in the Hamilton duel they talk about they talk about how you bring a doctor and kind of pay him (laughs) off and that was exactly what I was picturing with the medic cat because they've got Murr and his second who's they've got the the order of the bacon cat and his second and then they have this like medic cat who's there Uh,
0: and what does the medic cat do I don't even remember if he did anything specific oh my god you're okay (laughs) Are you forgetting the greatest oh, contribution no. of the medic cat? So when one of the one of the cats gets injured, if I, I think yes. the other cat got injured, they both get injured. Um, yeah. Well, I mean they they both get injured in the course, right? Um, <laughs> the medic cat. Um, I'm gonna have to let's let's hear from that. Let's hear from uh, in his own words about what happened here.
1: The night of the duel came at the appointed hour. At the appointed hour, I positioned myself with Musius on the roof of the house. My opponent soon appeared with a fine tomcat, brindled almost more colorfully than himself. The features of his countenance were even bolder and more defiant. This, we could presume, was my enemy's second. The two of them had been comrades on various campaigns and were also both at the conquest of the Larder, which had won the Tabby Tom, the Order of the Burnt Bacon. At the request of the cautious and provident Musius, a small, pale grey cat was present too. This cat was supposed to know a great deal about surgery, and was here to give appropriate treatment to the worst, most dangerous wounds, so that they would heal quickly. We took up our positions opposite each other. As custom demanded, the seconds set up a terrible caterwauling, and we jumped at one another. In a moment, as I tried to seize my adversary, he had sunk his teeth in my right ear and bitten it so hard that I couldn't help uttering a loud screech. Fall apart, cried Musius. The tabby let go, and we got back into position This time, I took great care, jumped to one side myself, and by the time my adversary thought he would seize me, I had bitten his neck so hard that he couldn't cry out but only groan. It was the turn of my adversary's second to cry, Fall apart! I leapt back at once, but the tabby sank to the ground unconscious as blood flowed freely from his deep wound. The pale gray cat immediately hurried over to him, and to help staunch the blood before bandaging the wound, employed a household remedy, which Musius assured me was always ready to hand since it went about with its owner. This meant that the medical cat instantly poured a liquid into the wound, and then sprayed the unconscious patient all over with it. It had so sharp and acrid an aroma, I felt sure it would have a strong, drastic effect. Ash gray surgeon asked whether I would like to have my own wounds treated with the same remedy. However, much as my ear and paw hurt me, I declined this offer and instead set off for home, elated by the victory I had won.
0: So as we heard in this uh, in this riveting account of the duel, uh, the Medi-Cat is on hand to provide much-needed emergency care. Um, <laughs> which in this case is... Um, you know, he, he when one of the cats gets wounded, the medicat instantly goes over and pours a liquid into the wound and sprays the unconscious patient with that with that same liquid. Um, I got <laughs> I read this and I was like, oh, OK, luckily, luckily, I, I do read the footnotes and <laughs> the footnote says. The medic cat has clearly (laughs) urinated on the wound.
2: I just was like, uncritically like, oh, clearly this medic cat has a tonic
0: of some kind. (laughs) I know, me too. Yeah. Until I read Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, I read the footnote. And then Murr, you know, Murr is offered the same remedy, but uh, he decides to go back to Master Abraham's instead. Uh, Presumably, Master Abraham will have...
2: Something better. I mean, I feel like Master Abraham does treat him with some stuff. I feel like it's not clear that it's not urine, I think, from Master Abraham. I would not. M- Master Abraham's in his like attic of horrors. Oh God, <laughs> like, I <weak>. don't know <laughs> at this stage. It could be for Master Abraham, it could also be anything, I feel like. Um, but Murr Mur- emerges victorious from this duel and um, feels kind of vindicated in what's happened with Kitty. But then he ends up almost immediately after in another conflict, uh, this time not with another cat, but with Achilles, a mastiff who is ruining kind of this idyllic time of, of the cats. Uh, and Mur says that Achilles is basically waging war on the cats um, and with the help of some Pomeranian friends. Uh, and they have a series of skirmishes Led by Achilles against the against Myrrh, Musius and the rest of the fellowship during one time uh, one of during one of which Musius ends up with his paw crushed into a trap. So after these this series of skirmishes with Achilles, the cats kind of retreat indoors again, Musius has been injured. Um, and so it seems at the stage that it's safer for the cats to stay inside.
0: And Myrrh returns to kind of Merrrh therefore returns to kind of his philistine, Philistine ways, um, which involves hiding under the stove.
2: When Mer is home on his return to his Philistine ways, he receives a visit from some old frenemies. So Ponto and Professor Lothario visit, uh, and the relationship between Murr and Ponto is strained, and obviously the relationship between Murr and Professor Lothario is strained. I think the last time. They saw each other was during the fire when Myrrh was hiding in the basket and yeah. Lothario was making some not even very thinly veiled, some threats towards towards Mur. Yeah. So He's still very angry at Myrrh and he kind of comes in and uh, and directs Ponto to, to seek out Murr, to find Murr, and then he's like, Well, here he is. Isn't isn't this Myrrh this the the cat who, you know, loves to read and write and uh is you know
0: and he's still he's still convinced that master abraham taught him to read and write
2: i've got to say professor lothario is like the master of self burns because i feel like he like he is like insulting myrrh of like oh you know he's like i don't care about cats like you're so weird and useless and then he like clearly cares a lot about cats
0: (laughs) i thought that that was so funny i loved that line he's like little as i generally concern myself with cats and then he like describes exactly what's been happening in like the cat society he's like oh yeah you know and then this order of the burnt bacon cat showed up and then there was a duel and then this other dog named achilles showed up and now everyone's you know not sure what to do like clearly bro you can (laughs) hear about the cats (laughs) he's clearly really cares about the cats so yeah so letharia like kind of again tries to insult (laughs) I th- I think Lothario definitely has some commissioned tiny oiled portraits of myrrh that he hands out to people. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, myrrh, uh, myrrh has again, as you
2: said, as you mentioned, given himself kind of back to his studies and back to his Philistine ways.
0: And towards the end... Well, not, not his studies. I think he's... I think it's safe to say he's yeah. pretty much given up <laughs> well, on so studies. Well, so he's given himself back
2: to his Philistine ways of... <laughs> Comfort and ease, and um, he is yes. in the midst of kind of concluding his nightly toilette, <laughs> um, so his nightly uh, ministrations to his fur mm-hmm. and to himself, when he hears uh, when a, one of the, his cat friends joins him to tell him that he has some sad news, which is that Mer's dear friend, Musius, has succumbed to his injuries from when his paw was crushed in the trap and has unfortunately
0: passed away. This was a very, very sad, very sad part of the book. Um, Musius is a black cat. I actually also have a black cat. So I was imagining (sighs) Musius as my cat. And so it was very sad to learn that he passed away, Um, especially in these circumstances. And I actually... Actually, there are so many fight scenes in this that I I kind of lost track of who was involved in which fight. Musius was actually also mm-hmm. Mer's second for the duel, uh, so for some reason I thought that he'd gotten injured there, but no, it was it was in this the context fight with the killies, of yeah. um, the fight with or not even. Fi- I mean that that's what made it even sadder. It's I wasn't. It didn't seem like a fair. Well, it didn't seem like a. It didn't seem like a duel between no. You know, even sides. It was kind of like this dog terrorizing the neighborhood. So it was well, and I think the dog terrorizing
2: the cats specifically on behalf of the humans who wanted the cats under control. And so they had not only kind of set Achilles on them, but also laid out these traps, which is what ultimately, like ultimately, Musius wasn't injured by Achilles; he was injured by like a trap that was set up, yeah, as part of this like reign of terror on these poor these poor cats who just wanted to like get. Get drunk on sardines and sing at night. <laughs> um, so yeah, so Musius unfortunately has died, and it's it's really sad. Um, and Mur ends up attending a wake that all of the cats throw for 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 Musius.
0: So this whole scene, like I said, is very sad, uh, and would have been you know difficult to read if not for the fact that it was also somehow one of the most i think i think it was it was the most hilarious part of the book for me um it had it had some of the best uh it had i, th- I think uh, my favorite passage i know that haley's favorite passage is obviously the one with mina and the and the fish head <laughs> that's a close second for me but this one coming up is actually actually what actually my favorite passage from the book and it's in the context of this wake uh to which mur actually mur is um, I don't know if he's in charge or if he just takes it upon himself to bring all the, basically provide all the snacks for the wake, and he does this because you know he he explains to us, uh, you know to us young tomcats reading the book, he explains how we too can score snacks for for wakes and other events. <laughs> um, basically, he's befriended this this uh, maid that works in Master Abraham's house, and she you know happily provides him all the stuff, and it, it even he even goes to the pains of explaining. You know, she hand, you know, she handed me these dishes of milk, and you may be wondering how I brought them down the stairs into the basement where the wake was happening. Well, here's how I did it. I just, you know, persuaded her to bring them down or something. So it's like he's, he's thought of everything. He knows that you're wondering how a cat without opposable thumbs could carry a tray of milk downstairs, but um, it's, all, it's all part <laughs> of his plan. Uh, so at this wake, he hears this funeral oration um, and... Uh, Haley, do you want to talk a little bit about that? We'll yes, yeah, it's a very, it well. it's a very long uh, funeral
2: oration by uh, Hinsman, uh, who is a, a cat who is a member of this kind of feline society.
0: From the footnote, we learned that Hinsman is, you know, that uh, is both a reference to uh, Hins, the cat and Puss in Boots, and this like famous German version, I think, uh, German version of, of, Puss, of the Puss in Boots story. Um, but it's also the name of a beer enjoyed by German students in the early nineteenth century. So it's a little bit it's a little bit like you know, having a funeral funeral oration by your bud wiser. Um, so it's. Uh, He's giving this very long speech.
2: It's long, and Murr Murr says that he enjoys the style. He will give, like, he gives the cat props for the style of the oration, but not the substance. Um, So it's, I guess, heavy on style, light on substance, because Hinsman kind of says that he doesn't really know too much about Musius's life. Um, He talks at length about the circumstances of Musius's death and how he... Uh, he suffered this wound to his leg and kind of refused treatment, which all of the cats are distraught uh, to hear, of course. Um, and so he talks and talks and talks at length about this. Um, I think at one point he falls asleep in the midst
0: of his oration, um, which is, <laughs> this, is why, this is why I love this, this whole thing so much. It's kind of it's hard to as I, as 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 we're ta- as we're talking about it, I'm realizing that it's not going to. In terms of, like, a single passage that just makes you crack up, I think I think the one with Mina and the fish yeah. head probably is the funniest, but just in terms of yes. gradual <laughs> unfolding, this one was, this whole funeral oration yes. was so funny because he'll be giving this speech, which, again, at the very end, Murr is, you know, Murr tells us he's not impressed by the speech, but then every now and then he'll, well, let's just hear, let's hear a little excerpt first. I've been realizing that, Haley, you're probably right that the scene with Mina and the fishhead is probably the single funniest passage, but this one, just in terms of the slow unfolding of this funeral oration, um, I thought was just the funniest passage, Um, in part because, you know, he'll be, you know, he's giving the speech, and then he'll kind of, and then of course, we learn later on that Murr is not impressed by the speech for various reasons, but then he'll stop, he stops in the middle of the speech, and then he... (laughs) Slowly licks his paw, runs his paw over his head and then, you know, looks around and then <laughs> resumes and then he falls asleep. And it was just it was so perfect. So Hinsman ends the speech um,
2: and then Murr is, Mur has a moment of not levity, but a moment of mm, a bright spot, I guess, in the midst of this funeral because a cat comes and sings a rendition, I believe, of in bomb So Murr is not distracted by the choice of song like I was. He's distracted a little bit by the singer um, who is this kind of as we learned in part two uh, Murr loves nothing more than someone who is a beautiful singer, <laughs> um, and and praises that quality very, very highly. He kind of notices this this cat singing this beautiful song, um, and he says that it the song makes him feel a bit strange, because he's both appreciative of the art, but also clearly sad. Um, and then we get a really, really sad scene where three young female cats come and spread some plants on Musius's grave in his honor that we learn were his daughters.
0: Whom he did not whom, as Hinsman tells us in the oration, he was such a good father, he didn't even eat his daughters. Which, once again, we get this... We saw this in part one as well. I guess it's some kind of lore that tomcats eat their children. I have yeah. not heard of that in real life.
2: The daughters lay some, I, I think it's parsley, onto Musius' grave in his honor, and then four cats come and they fill up the grave...
0: Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> by by scratching the earth and pawing it into the grave, this is what I mean. I would start all these like really sad scenes <laughs> with these little details of how the cats did it. That was just cracking up the whole time. so yes, the cats are basically what your cats do with with a litter box into Musius's grave
2: after they've scratched the earth into Musius's grave um they come kind of come together for the after the after funeral snack portion of the evening mur
0: positions himself next to the loveliest the loveliest of the daughters the older the older ones so there are three young ones and then there's one slightly older one so he he kind of starts talking to the slightly older one And he says, you know, he was dazzled by her beauty
2: and then, of course, enchanted by her sweet voice and her clear mind. Um, And they start to talk a little bit. And she is, I think, clearly a Philistine cat as well, because she says they bond over how much they love warm porridge with milk. (laughs) And so, Murr's definitely f-
0: Not only that she's she's enamored by hearing Mur talk about his breakfast. Yes,
2: exactly. She's like, "Please but sh- tell me
0: more." <laughs> yes, yeah, so she so he's describing in great detail, you know, what's two bowls of porridge with some more milk and a knob of butter and she's like, "Wow!" And you said a knob of butter in addition to the milk? Oh, wow. Yeah. What an amazing concept. This is the equivalent of, you know, sitting someone down and talking to them about your overnight oats. And, like, they're just so excited about it. Um, <laughs> that's when you know you've found your soulmate, I guess. Yeah,
2: somebody who also is like, keto. I want to be on keto. Great. <laughs>
0: Let's talk more about the butter you put into this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um and so, so yeah so they they dance several dances um and then Mur kind of takes her over into the corner and is he's kind of like about to ha- confess his love
0: when kitty shows up <laughs> a lot of things happen in this moment so kitty shows up okay first of all we learned that Mur has not in fact met his soulmate he has simply met his daughter yes through kitty uh so <laughs> there's this moment of you know uh where he yeah sudden reveal of incest um or potential incest kitty is very upset with him and says the, you know what is wrong with you this is your daughter uh and so mer mer realizes that oh she must have you know she must have had this great love for porridge and butter he must have passed down this um this is a genetic intr—this genetic love for for butter and milk—it's
2: confusing to me because her name is Mina. Which is his mother's name too. So yeah. I was like, wait, hold on. So Kitty, yeah, yes, Kitty shows up. I only
0: realized that <laughs> yeah. the most recent time I reread it. It's like double incest. Yes. she's both his daughter and his mother.
2: Yeah. When I first read it, I was like, is it his sister? You know, like, I was like, who is Mina in this situation? There's just a lot of there's a lot of incest between these cats going on, um, and it's all kind of confusing. Um, but yes, she's well, going. Our-
0: didn't didn't quite didn't the incest didn't actually come to pass yes almost although so, yeah although Mur even once he realizes that this cat is his daughter I think Mina or the kitty, kitty then is trying to kind of rekindle things with him mm-hmm. and Mur describes himself you know he says he looks at he looks at the mother he looks at the daughter and he knows whom he prefers. <laughs> But then, you know, he's, well, he, something, I, I forget how, but he doesn't, he doesn't, um, but then he, he doesn't actually act on this, yeah. but it is on his mind. And Kitty realizes this as well, um, realizes that as she's talking to him and trying to rekindle things, she sees that he's clearly more interested in their daughter. So yeah. that's one major reveal in this, in the scene is about, is that Murr actually has a daughter through, um, he, he actually has a daughter from his relationship with Kitty. Yes. And this daughter's name is Mina, Mina mm-hmm. whom he also almost starts this incestuous relationship with. And then the other major reveal is actually about what Kitty has been up to since breaking up with Murr. Yes,
2: so Kitty, since breaking up with Murr, as we know, she left him for the cat from the Order of the Burnt Bacon. Um, they had a relationship up until it sounds like the point of the duel between Murr and that cat. At which point after kind of losing that duel, the cat from the Order of the Burnt Bacon leaves Kitty alone. Uh, and disappears. No one knows where he went. And after that, Kitty takes up with Musius, actually. And so Kitty takes up with Musius, and then they have the three cats, the three young female cats who were Musius's daughters who celebrated him by putting the parsley on his grave, like we talked about just a little bit ago. Um, so Mina is not only Murr's daughter, but she's also the stepsister to those four cats who were dancing or the, the three the the, sorry yes, the three that cats that were um honoring Musius, and one of the reasons, or, and the reason why Kitty is in such deep mourning is because her beloved Musius has just, has just died.
0: Yeah, And Murr says, you know, that this is a credit to Musius that he didn't, um, you know, that he didn't tell Murr that he was in, now in a relationship with Kitty. Um, so Murr takes that as kind of a sign of respect that Musius has for him. I, I was, I was... Pleasantly surprised at Mur's reaction. Mm-hmm. I think you know. I think that's the right call. Like, I'm I'm glad he didn't. You know, wasn't in a jealous fit like all the other human characters yeah. in this book. <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, I was a little skeptical. I'm not sure that that we don't know Musius's motives for keeping this information from Mur. I guess it sounds it sounds like Musius and Kitty were happy. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't. If 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 Musius didn't see the three young cats, the his three young daughters. I'm not really sure how involved he was in Kitty's life anymore, but yeah, it's working for them. Yeah, you know, who am I to comment? <laughs> yeah, um, I am. I am out of my depth in the complex relationships that are depicted in this book to be honest. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah so maybe these are more complex than we, we had originally been like, oh, the cats are straightforward and now it's like, actually. No, there's nothing,
0: there's nothing, like I said, there's nothing straightforward about how the relationships play yeah. out. It's just, they're a little more straightforward about what they what they think well and i I think
2: they're a little free of the power dynamics i think or they are free of the power dynamics that associate are associated with the human ones so you know mina mer then has to (laughs) mer kind of makes his preference for mina his daughter mina clear but then he has to kind of watch her go off into the uh into the night dancing with Hinsman, who has given the funeral oration, so he sees her. Hinsman, that hat, <laughs> I know, exactly. Um, so he goes off into off into the. She goes off into the night dancing with Hinsman. He sits and talks with Kitty for a little bit and uh, is just kind of at the at the point where he he suspects that she might have made some strange <laughs> propositions to him. But before she makes any too strange propositions, she's asked to dance by senior, a cat named Senior Puff or or no, the the cat (laughs) who
0: is the senior not Senior Puff, Senior Puff Puff. I was like Senior
2: Senior Puff (laughs) no, the Senior Puff asks Kitty to dance so Kitty goes off, dances goes off with Senior Puff for the last dance and Murr steals away, takes that opportunity to steal away upstairs uh, thinking you know, he'll He'll get more clarity with time, um, and he's excited to kind of see what, what time brings him. He sees that he's entering a new phase of his life. That's where we wrap up with Myrrh in part three, as well as where we write, wrap up with Chrysler and the folks at Prince Irenaeus' court, um, and I think that's also where we'll end
0: today's episode as we get ready to approach part four. Beneficial Consequences. Yeah, so part 4 we will get answers to some but not all of our questions. Um don't be like me, prepare yourselves a little more for the uh for the lack of satisfaction and um uh, just kind of lack of um uh, what's the word? Cl- lack of closure that you are about to experience. I prepare myself for it I think each time when I'm in part three and then when I get to part four I'm still like ah I just wish I knew all how all these mysteries <laughs> were resolved but we'll do our best we'll probably have to um, we'll go a little bit into the realm of speculation probably as we get into part four and we think about um, what you know what Hoffman might have done to conclude some of these to kind of tie some of these threads together but um it's still a lot of fun to read, and uh, incidentally, Mer's section does kind of reach a, a natural stopping point, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, because Murr the, the real-life Cap Mer, passes away shortly after um, this book two is published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about all that um, in the next couple of episodes. So yeah, we'll see you then.